Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we are talking with the executive director of the National Football League Players Association, Demora Smith. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And let's start with the Houston Rockets, Houston restaurant and casino entrepreneur, Tillman Fertitta is buying the National Basketball Association's Houston Rockets for a reported $2.2 billion. Oh, my, that price tag. Can we pat ourselves on the back, Evan? When they said they were going on the market, boom, we looked at each other. We said, Asia, top market, all the things that are going on in the NBA, boom, this thing's going to go for more than $2 billion. A lot of bankers were saying under, we took the over. We got it right this time. And it's great for all the other NBA owners out there. We saw MSG shares jump right after the news was announced. Not a coincidence. This is something that makes every other NBA team more valuable, just like that $2 billion sale of Balmer buying the Clippers did a couple years ago. This is so weird to me, though, that people would see the Rockets selling for $2.2 billion and say, oh, oh, well, this is good for MSG and the, the, let's bounce the stock because the Knicks are worth more. something's worth what somebody's willing to pay. In an open auction, is it a surprise to anybody that the Knicks would go for some monster number? I mean, everything's baked in already. We know what the Knicks are going to be worth. A lot of money. They would set three-plus billion if they were on the market. But there's a problem here because the Clippers, they lost money in the 2015-2016 season, as you mentioned about the Clippers sales. So what, what happens here? Do you think this team will lose money? This team, the bankers tell me, kicks off about $50 million a year in profit. They have a ready-made machine. They have a great building. They've got a nice roster. They've got a good basketball executive in there already in Daryl Morey. Those are the things you need. And the national numbers, the ones you don't have to really do anything because they come from a league negotiated. ESPN is paying monster numbers for the NBA. You've got sports betting on the horizon, which will kick even more money into these franchises. Doesn't look as if the Rockets will have any problem being in the black anytime soon. One other funny takeaway about this. How different was this sale process than what we saw with the Marlins earlier this year? Is, that, mean, is that finally done? I mean, I, It's <laughs> amazing. Les, Les Alexander in July says this team is for sale. Six weeks later, announces that the team is sold, has a local buyer, a billionaire, with no partners, no concern about where else is he getting the money. There was one auction. It happened pretty quickly. It was easy. The difference between this and what happened with the Marlins is night and day to me. Yeah, when Les said, I'm not using a banker on that first day, you and I rolled our eyes. Oh, no, not one of these. Didn't he learn from Laura? You know what? Fertitta had tried to buy the franchise at the same time as Les Alexander lost out by about $4 million. How silly. Imagine now if you could go back. Like, I lost out all those years ago by $4 million, and now I have to pay $2.2 billion, but they know each other. Fertitta sits at games. Uh, something tells me there have been some whispering in the ear for a while now that I want this franchise, and uh, let's make it happen. No wonder why that everybody loves Fertitta, because like you said, now he's paying $2.2 billion. That's it's a good number for the NBA. Uh, curious to see now where this all goes with all that, all the shared money. What's next? What's the next big revenue stream? It's not jersey patches. What's the next big revenue and stream? And if I'm an NBA owner right now, I'm selling as well. Let's also talk about the L.A. Clippers, and they're adding the star courtside seating next to the benches, and it's not cheap, guys. I'm not going to see you there, am I? Uh, no. <laughs> like Ma- Madison Square Garden has this. The Lakers have this. This is L.A. 
baby. This is sizzle. <laughs> this is Hollywood. What's $175,000 to be sitting on the floor? Uh, come on, this is L.A. You, you, you almost have to do it. Yeah, the Clippers are tapping into what they know their starstruck city does. It's vanity. You know, if you can get a seat on the court that's going to be on TV the entire game because that's across the, across the court from where the TVs are, who cares how much it costs? People will, will pay to sit there, and that's great for the Clippers. Worth noting, by the way, 4000 a game, less than MSG, less than the Golden State Warriors. And look what's happened out there, by the way. All the Silicon Valley executives sit courtside. Now they're doing business with the players. Wow. So this is this could be a business investment, not just a vanity play, as young Mr. Novi Williams says. Let's move on to the next topic. Now, listen, we have had people stealing signals from baseball teams for many years, but this is a new one. The Boston Red Sox reportedly stole the signals from the Yankees using an Apple iWatch. It's okay, I think, in baseball to steal signs in the old way. You know, you got you got to find a way to figure it out. The objection, it seems to me, around baseball, having heard this for a couple of days now, is that they're bringing the technology into the dugout. That was the big no-no. Everybody seemed to say, stealing signs, even Dave Dombrowski. Somehow we get back to Detroit, right? (laughs) Even Dave Dombrowski, the Red Sox, said, this is no big deal. People steal signs. But the technology in the dugout, the utilization of the watch, seemed to be the problem. And taking a step back, I think this is great for baseball. And this is a sport that sometimes struggles to stay relevant in September when NFL comes back and we start talking about basketball again. This is their best rivalry. They're both going to make the playoffs. They haven't met in the playoffs since the Red Sox came back from 3-0 down almost a decade ago. All of this gets people talking about the rivalry, about the sport, and that's great for baseball. The last stand of old technology is going to be the landline in the baseball dugout. The call to the bullpen. Sponsored by at and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi-Williams. Scott, it is the start of the NFL season, and it's another year when it seems like off-the-field issues are grabbing the headlines from an on-the-field action. You got that right. Last year, a big topic was Patriots quarterback Tom Brady serving a suspension for Deflategate. This year, it's the discipline the NFL handed out to Dallas running back Ezekiel Elliott in a domestic violence case. To discuss it all, we're pleased to welcome the head of the NFL Players Union, Demora Smith, Demoris, what is the significance to the business of NFL players with what's going on with Ezekiel and the commissioner? What What is the impact, what is the meaning to the business of football? I, I think that's something we've tried to stress this entire time, uh, consistent with the rights of the players. It's not good for business. I mean, this is probably, the, at the very least, the fourth or fifth year in a row that we've started the NFL season uh, really not talking about football, but talking about the deficiencies in the commissioner discipline process. And the way we look at it is the the way that we have looked at it since 2011. And the commissioner discipline process has been uh, a mess at worst, um, a distraction at best, and it will continue to be so until the owners decide to collectively bargain it. And until they decide to collectively bargain it, you are going to have a system that's not transparent, one that uh, really at times looks almost like a joke, and one that will necessarily result in a union that's going to take every step 
uh, every day, every hour to protect the interest of its players. Now, historically, in labor talks, the blood issue on the union side has been financial matters. It's always about the commas and the decimal points. Usually the same for the owners. It's all about money. Is this a blood issue now for players, or has it been for owners as well? But where does it stand now in importance and issues with players that commissioner discipline? Yeah, and, and Scott, I, I, I look at it this way. I mean, there is no one blood issue. Um, you know, for years, um, I, you know, I agree that you look at the history of uh, labor negotiations in sports, you know, even dating back to Marvin Miller days, um, I would say that the, the core issues have always been, um, you know, as Ed Garvey would say, freedom issues and control issues. Those have a way of turning into financial issues because on one side of the table, uh, a freedom issue is free agency. On the uh, on the owner's side of the table, it's an issue of uh, franchise tags, right? So there uh, has never been, to me, one single money issue or non-money issue. We we went uh, very hard on the issue of health and safety in the last uh, collective uh, bargaining agreement. So to me, the issues are all issues on the table. The issue um, gets joined when one side says no, and then you either reach a compromise or you don't. And it was that way over 18 games in 2011. It was a blood issue was whether they were going to take back our pensions. That was a blood issue. Um, And so those things were things that were fought to the death. The reality is we fought heavily over the issue of neutral arbitration and commissioner discipline, and the owners refused to budge on neutral arbitration. Uh, part of part of the irony, of course, is some of the owners that were against neutral arbitration are owners who had to deal with the unfairness of commissioner discipline. So this rests squarely um, and almost entirely with John Mara. John is the head of the NFL's board of directors, for lack of uh, a better word. They call it the CEC, but it acts like a board of directors. Um, this is not even a Roger Goodell issue. Um, Roger is almost irrelevant uh, when it comes to the macro issue of neutral arbitration as it relates to collective bargaining. This falls squarely on John Mara, and he apparently is fine with the decision of owners not collectively bargaining uh, over the issue of commissioner discipline. And so that leaves us in a broken, um, let's let the ends justify the means system, but it then uh, puts us in a situation where this union is always going to fight for the rights of its players. That was a bit, you talked about that too, that was a big thing about the last negotiations, but it ended up with Roger Goodell being the the lone voice, and that has been a big criticism from the union and from players, that there is no negotiation about discipline. What lessons now have you learned from the previous negotiation to go into the next negotiation. So from the player's point, this won't happen again. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would correct you on is the 2011 CBA didn't end up with commissioner discipline being that way. Um, Commissioner discipline clause has been in the collective bargaining agreement since 1993. 
So what lessons do you draw? The only lesson you draw is if one side doesn't want to bargain over an issue, um, there is an impasse. So if the owners didn't budge on 18 games, we would still be locked out. If the players uh, didn't want to come back to play over um, uh, I, over the issue of commissioner discipline and, and you reach an impasse, then the players have to decide whether or not they want to go on strike um, or whether they want to move on to other issues that are important to them as well. So this isn't a paradigm where someone dropped the ball as you know on on the issue of commissioner discipline one side did not want to bargain over commissioner discipline and now we are stuck with the owner's decision to not bargain over it demoris you and i have known each other a long time and we've had lots of discussions i know there are some things that irk you how would you describe the way the nfl conducts its business i've been in this job for a long time now and there's certain myths uh, about the league that I think uh, uh, folks who spend time uh, covering or in the business world just have to get get to. Uh, give us myth one and myth two. Well, myth one is that the league operates like a business or operates like a corporation. That's a myth. Um, the second myth is that the league is governed uh, like major corporations are governed by a board of directors. It's not. So... Um, and the reason why I would throw those things out to, to people like you, uh, too, is what corporation in America would allow um, its business model to be dictated uh, by a non-economic issue like this year after year after year at the beginning of the season? They wouldn't you would make a decision about what's in the best global interest of the business and you would reach a conclusion and in the issue of commissioner discipline and i've said this time and time again to the owners uh... and to roger wouldn't we be better off in a system with a neutral arbitrator where the commissioner can impose discipline and the whole issue goes to a neutral arbitrator and and she rules either one way or the other but what you have is transparency and finality and then you move on to your core business what business in america wouldn't do that um, and that's because those two myths are indeed myths and there are some people in the national football league particularly on the owner side who will always choose um, the ability to have control um, over common sense. Could it not fester into a business issue if one, as we saw some of the protests with Ray, if one wanted to attack league sponsors, league television networks, it certainly could become a business issue. But what part of commissioner discipline has anything to do with the protest? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, we aren't talking about, when we're talking about commissioner discipline, we're not talking about issues of free speech. Um, we aren't even talking about issues where any player on any day, on any game, has done anything to um, 
interfere uh, with the 60 minutes of football that's being played on the field. No, no player has walked off the field during the game. No player has stopped a game. When you think about the issue of commissioner discipline or fines, um, we are talking about primarily off-field issues. And then the other issues that, that went on that seemed to dominate the day were the extent to which the league was going to punish players for uh, post-touchdown celebrations. Well, we've been in that post-touchdown celebration model for how long now? This is the first year that they relaxed the rules on, on, on post-touchdown celebrations. A reaction to millennials not watching or watching less football? <laughs> I have no idea because uh, I don't have the time nor the will to crawl into the brain of owners and try to come up with logical explanations for illogical behavior. You mentioned about free speech, and this brings me to Colin Kaepernick, because whether people agree or disagree with him kneeling during the national anthem, it it is not uh, illegal. It it is an expression of free speech, and now he is not employed with any of the 32 teams. Can you comment on that, and has the union tried to help him? Sure. Yeah, we've. I commented on uh, on Collins' uh, uh, protest the day after he did it, uh, um, more than a year ago. Um, we believe in our players' rights to to free speech. Uh, we've stayed in touch with with Collins' representatives. We've um, for the the entire off season have uh, respected um, their wishes about how the union uh, was going to engage uh, or not engage. Uh, the league directly uh, on the issue, and, and we made a decision that that was in the best interest uh, of the player to follow the lead um, of his representatives, and we continue to do so. Um, if there comes a time when when we make a decision uh, that the union is going to do something um, uh, regardless of, of the position of his representatives, um, you too will be the first to know. <laughs> Okay, you won't, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure I'll let you guys know what, what we'll do. The Morris, a few years ago, the NFL and the Players Union agreed to change the salary structure of incoming draft choices, which basically took away the enormous contracts of high first-round draft choices. Why? Let's understand. Let's just dive in 30 seconds of, of rookie uh, economics. Okay. There is a rookie pool right. of money. There is no cap. There never has been a cap. So there has always been a rookie pool of money. The change that we made in 2011 was to take um, percentages of the money that primarily went to the top 15, 18 players and push that money down to the other 200 players who are in the draft. The top 15, top 20 players, um, I would argue, are still making serious coin, the two major changes that we made were to make sure that we pushed money down uh, further into the draft where players, where the primary uh, or the predominant amount of players who were being drafted in rounds three uh, to the end of the round were were, uh, primarily making league minimum. 
So what we decided to do was to push more money into the hands of players who are confined in a free market where they are directed to a team and have a limited ability uh, because of the draft to negotiate um, where they are going to work. Dee, do you see last year's TV ratings dip and the, the less time people are watching as an anomaly? Do you think there'll be a bounce back this year with no election going on, or will there be an, uh, still some Trump hangover, or whatever the reasons I, I, might have been? Right. I don't really see it as an anomaly. Um, I, I, I don't know um, if it's going to be the same uh, rate of a decline, but the reality is um, there is a greater amount of competition uh, for the attention of our viewers, and that uh, that is not going to change. And and so, uh, my feeling about the ratings is, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time looking at um, trends and 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 taking stock of of. Uh, regression analysis and other forecast about um, what's going to happen in the way in which our game is being um, um, seen or, or digested. But the reality is uh, the viewing patterns of viewers in the in the future are going to change, and the models or modes in which they digest the game uh, are going to change. Um, you know, when you go back to issues like commissioner discipline, um, you know, the real problem uh, with the league's failure and the, the CEC's failure to deal with that issue is that it prevents us from um, engaging in larger macroeconomic issues of how do we approach this issue of the changing modes and models in which our game is being viewed and the potential long-term impacts on the generation of revenue. And we're not having those conversations now uh, because our players aren't interested in having those conversations now uh, because you have um, a group of league owners who are unwilling to constructively engage in a non-economic issue. It's amazing today that the issue of concussions has finally come to the forefront in a game that has been around for many, many years. Why in the world has it taken so long for the league to realize CTE obviously is a very dangerous thing for the players out there on the field? Well, I mean, um, I mean, without going too hard, when are issues like freedom and safety um, ever bestowed on anyone? They're not. They're fought for. Um, and, you know, within two months of being elected in 2009, I was testifying on Capitol Hill about uh, the problems in the National Football League and the way in which uh, they not only treated concussions, but the way in which they viewed them. And my testimony kicked off with everything you need to know is that Back then, the the current head of the league's concussion committee was a rheumatologist. So these issues have only been brought uh, um, to a place where we have actionable change 
because there is a union that took the view that we were going to take a zero-sum approach to health and safety. Every year we get the conversation, especially during the negotiations, and you mentioned it earlier, about let's extend the regular season to 18 games or make it even longer. And and I try not to throw an opinion <laughs> in when, when, I, when we talk about these interviews. But, folks, uh, to NFL fans – Nobody's going to be left. If you go to 18 games for a regular season even longer, there's going to be nobody left on the field. So uh, can you expand more on that, or am I off base? Um, on the issue of, of adding regular season yes. games? Yes, Yeah, the answer is no. Simple. I know. I That's mean, it. No. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean, get, no, a, I don't get a vote. <laughs> I don't get a vote. Uh, but um, I don't believe that 18 games – uh, is in the best health, safety, and overall economic interest of the players. All right, that's Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA. D, thanks so much for taking time. Thank you. Awesome, guys. Great to chat with you. Takeaways from the Demora Smith interview. The biggest thing that I noticed was, and I'm glad that he set me straight about how the rookie structure payment is all set up, because a lot of people think that it was just a cap. It's way more than that because the money is filtered down to all of the new draft players. And because the average life of an NFL player is short, at least they're going to get paid when they're in the league. And my takeaway is there has been zero, nada, none, no improvement in the relationship between the union and the NFL. The owners, according to the players and the way they view things, it's all about control. They want to control everything, even if, as DeMora said, it's to the detriment of the business of the product. You have to wonder if they'll ever find a way to bridge this relationship, bridge this gap, and be able to work together. And then there's the problem also, and many people have criticized this latest agreement because Roger Goodell, according to many people, has this almighty power and so far as an arbitrator there really is a problem with that according to the critics because whatever Goodell says that's it well collectively bargained so the next time around you wonder if the players want their freedom from Roger and if Roger and the owners are determined to hold on to that power especially over discipline are we looking at here we go again another lockout that's the big question my goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. And the number of the week, 11. That is the number involved week 11 when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Miami Dolphins will play. That was originally their bye week, but because of Hurricane Irma, they were supposed to play week one. That has been canceled. That brings up the problem because now those two teams are going 16 weeks straight and neither team likes it. Yeah, well, of course, you have to look at the broader world outside of football. You know, uh, That is a first world problem, so to speak, that you have to play later on. But in an era when DeMaris and the players are so focused on player safety, that rest and recuperation week is a big one. Players can get healthy, and now they don't have it. You wonder, toward the end of the year, should any of these clubs be playoff-bound, how much of a toll that will take? Well, I know the old schoolers are going to say, well, by cracky, they used to play 14 weeks straight. You didn't hear any of this stuff. Well, 
That's true, but I'm sorry. The game is much more physical. The game is much faster, and people get hurt in this game. We have seen many of those old-timers lose their cognitive abilities. Perhaps it's not the best take to say, well, the way we used to do it. We have learned that uh, even the NFL admits there's a link between playing football, head trauma, CTE. You've got to be able to protect the players or else look big, big, big picture. The talent pool dries up. I mean, we see people retiring early now, 25, 26. They just don't want to risk it. That talent pool dries up. Guess what? The whole game goes away. And let's explain also why they are moving it to week 11. Even though neither team likes it, at least the Miami Dolphins, they will still get their gate receipts when they come to week 11. So there is some bonus to that. Money, money, money. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and best in the world of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.